I think if more people read literature, we'd have less polarization. We'd have more understanding and at least more kindness, I would think, in the world. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Carmela Martino. She is an author, speaker, and writing teacher who holds an MFA in writing for children and young adults. Her articles, poetry, and short stories have been published in newspapers, magazines, and anthologies. She is also the author of the middle grade novel, Rosa Sola from Candlewick Press, based on her experiences growing up in an Italian immigrant family. Her historical romance novel, Playing by Heart from Vinspire Publishing, is inspired by two amazing sisters who lived in an 18th century Milan, one a composer and the other a mathematician. Playing by Heart has received numerous awards including the 2018 Catholic Arts and Letters Award for Children's Young Adult Fiction. Carmela has taught writing classes to both children and adults for over 20 years. My guest today is Carmela Martino. Carmela, I know you brought some literature for us, so why don't you take it away? Yes, Jane, thank you. I'm here. I'm going to share today from Pride and Prejudice. And I'm going to share from chapter 36. Um, Darcy has given Elizabeth a letter explaining his history with Wickham. And for anyone who may not know, Darcy and Wickham are somewhat enemies. But Wickham is a handsome and charming young man who's convinced Elizabeth that Darcy has mistreated him. So Darcy explains what really happened in the letter. And after Elizabeth, well, Elizabeth begins reading it with, quote, a strong prejudice against everything he might say, end quote. But after reading the letter from Darcy several times, she sees things differently. And so the two paragraphs I'm going to read explain her emotions from chapter 36. She grew absolutely ashamed of herself. Of neither Darcy nor Wickham could she think without feeling that she had been blind, partial, prejudiced, absurd. How despicably have I acted, she cried. I, who have prided myself on my discernment. I, who have valued myself on my abilities, who have often disdained the generous candor of my sister and gratified my vanity in useless or blamable mistrust. How humiliating is this discovery. Yet, how just a humiliation. Had I been in love, I could not have been more wretchedly blind. But vanity, not love, has been my folly. Pleased with the preference of one and offended by the neglect of the other on the very beginning of our acquaintance, I have courted prepossession and ignorance and driven reason away where either were concerned. Till this moment, I never knew myself. Ooh, Jane Austen just knows how to hit the nail on the head, doesn't she? She does. She does. To only take a couple of paragraphs and completely crack open that pride and prejudice that what's at the center of my heart. I mean, I'll be <laughs> I'll be the first one to admit it. And just holding up that mirror to us. I love this scene because it's it's a turning point in the in the novel, basically, in the story of, of how Elizabeth sees herself and well, and especially the the thing is, is as you read through Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth is the strong and the bright character. And so you automatically sympathize with her. You automatically think she's got all the right ideas about these individuals. And then to watch this person you admire crack. Yes. Yes, because she's smart. She's witty. She's clever. And so to realize that she can make a mistake such a grave mistake to so totally misjudge not only Darcy, but Wickham. And, and, um, but what I love about this and what I love about Austin is we see these characters and 
even though she wrote what 200 years ago, they are still relevant. We we are making the same mistakes that Elizabeth and Darcy and Jane made in the story, and and we will probably keep making those mistakes. And so I think that's part of why Austen's novels have stood the test of time. The characters are so real, and they're their authenticity still rings true today. Mm, it's true. Where were you at in your life when you encountered this for the first time? I've been trying to remember that because I've, I've loved literature for so long. I was at least in high school, but possibly in college the first time I read Pride and Prejudice. And what's really funny is I just recently read a couple of sort of, not spinoffs, but imitations of Pride and Prejudice, and I, which I don't normally read, but a friend of mine knows I'm a big fan of Jane Austen, so she had recommended a book to me called Aisha at Last, which is a very similar story as Pride and Prejudice, but in a Muslim family. Oh. And, and it's very interesting in that you see into the Muslim faith a lot, and it's portrayed quite a bit in that book. And the character who mirrors Darcy is sort of a fundamentalist Muslim, but he, and the world, because he chooses to dress a certain way, the world perceives him a certain way, but he's not the kind of person they perceive him as. And the the Elizabeth counterpart in the book similarly misjudges him because of his attire and and some other things. And um, so I thought it was very well done. It wasn't quite as much like Pride and Prejudice as I had hoped, but it does have, to me, the acid test is, does it have the first proposal, like Darcy's first proposal, where he just completely blows, paying any compliment to this young woman, he wants to marry him, you know, he just insults her to no end. Well, that scene is in in this book, Aisha at last. But then I happened to see someone who graduated from Vermont College, where I graduated my writing degree, has, I didn't know, has, has a trio of books inspired by Austin, but they're murder mysteries, or at least the first one's a murder mystery. It's called Pride and Premeditation. Oh my. <laughs> and it's a very interesting book and cleverly done, but it, it, other than having the characters have the same names and somewhat the same personality, it's quite different from Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> and um, murder is committed and you know all kinds of things happen. So it's quite different, but it was funny. So after reading those two, I had to go back and read Pardon Prejudice again. And I hadn't read it in a long time. And it struck me that I, I took new things away from it this time. And maybe it's because, you know, I'm a parent of, a, of an adult now. And I was just like floored at the parents. I just thought, I always knew that Mrs. Bennett was a ditzy person, but Mr. Bennett, I was actually quite disappointed in. I, I guess I didn't remember him you know, part of the fault lies with him on what happens. And and I guess I didn't remember that from the first time. So it, it showed me again how where you are in life when you read a book really affects how you interpret the characters and, and some of the events in the story. So, so I've read it, I don't know how many times now. I don't read it that often, but every so often. Well, and I think it it just goes to show you like you were saying, the timelessness of Austin's work, that it can be adapted to a murder mystery or adapted to a Muslim family. And I think it's so cool that I don't think Jane Austen would have ever imagined that her work would inspire a 21st century Catholic woman to read a book about a family practicing Islam. But that her art brought you to whole new worlds and looking at your life and others' lives in a completely different light. I love fiction. I love books. (laughs) Look at the power of that. I mean, it's just words on a page, and yet your world changes. It does. And how your perspective of the world changes. Not only does it change your world, but it changes how you view the world. And that's, I think, one of the powers of fiction. How long had you known that you would write fiction? Oh, you know, I started writing poetry when I was in junior high, and I was keeping a journal. So in junior high, I started writing poetry and keeping a journal, but I didn't ever write actual fiction. And I, in high school, I, I had some of my poetry published, and I had newspaper articles published, 
but I don't think I ever wrote fiction until I took a creative writing class in high school my senior year, and I had to write a short story for the first time. So that was the first time that I wrote fiction. Wow. So you started with poetry. Yes. And then, because I didn't think I could be support myself with with writing, I uh, I actually have a degree in math and computer science. I went to college and wanted something practical. And so I worked in data processing for five years. And then I started working as a trainer of people. I went to work for a company that did training for people who were in uh, learning about computers. And so when I was writing the training course materials and video scripts and things like that, I started remembering how much I loved to write because I sort of gave it up for the, for once I started working. And then when my son was born, I decided to, uh, I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. So I started freelancing for newspapers and magazines, and I, I got a job working for the local diocesan Catholic newspaper, which we had at that time. We don't have one anymore. But So I worked for them for five years and did some freelance writing. But as I read more and more to my son, I realized I wanted to write for young people and eventually went back to college, got a master's, an MFA in writing for children and young adults. So kind of a roundabout way to get to fiction. <laughs> You know, and it's interesting because you're not the first person I've met who starts off their quote unquote career in the hard sciences, for lack of a better term, but ends up in writing. Do, do you feel like there was a relationship between your experience in math and computer science and your writing? De I see a relationship definitely between math and poetry. I see parallels between math and poetry. I like, I like, Form, I like structure, though I do write, I write a lot of free verse also, but um, I, I like playing with a lot of different forms too. And I can see that in math, uh, the parallels with math and poetry. Um, and actually too, as a, as a computer programmer, I was writing code. So I guess I was writing then, uh, it was just a different language, um, but it was writing in a way too. So it, it itself was a, a form of creativity also. Wow. I, I love how you tie that together for us. Because I, I think the siloed approach to life that we're kind of living in, in 21st century America, is is actually kind of damaging to the integrity of the human person. That you think, you know, your creativity has to exist in this silo, your career has to exist in this silo, your spiritual life has to exist in this silo. And there's no perceived connections, that we think that all of these different areas of human experience and human wisdom don't have connections, but they're all tied to our human experience and therefore must be connected and not just to ourselves and our own minds, but to our community, to our art. Right. We're a whole person. We can't be divided up in pieces. Um, well, we can be, but I think that leads to problems when you try to segment your life too much. Right. I, I absolutely think so. I, you know, I, I listened to a YouTube channel that's with a doctor and he talks about the biopsychosocial aspects of a human person and how they're all interrelated. And of course, being Catholic, being a Christian, I would add the spiritual life to that as mm -hmm. well. But it's like um, this idea of living an integrated life. And I think that that's one of the things that reading fiction can help us with is you're getting to reach into someone's mind, someone's experiences, someone's story, their worldview. And so you're, you're, you're almost getting to see a whole person in the work that you're reading. And maybe that reflects back to us that, yeah, we're whole people too. <laughs> Cause I think there, there is so much pressure to, there is so much pressure to, turn yourself into a, a cellular organism where, um, you know, you think that your career doesn't have an impact on your family or your family life doesn't have an impact on your spiritual life. And, and that we, we, we live a more and more isolated life. Yeah. I think too, this is why I get more out of books than films. And I know you can do some of that watching a film. You can, you can, I don't get it as much watching a film, the whole aspects of the person. It's hinted at, 
if you have great acting, it can be hinted at well. But a lot of what's produced video, I don't think is that that great that you can actually see the depths of the characters and what they're going through. Whereas in contrast, in a book, a novelist has the ability to put it on the page. And that, I think, helps me understand someone better than watching their story on the film. Mm, that you get to see the interior life. Right, right. Which is pretty hard to act out. Right. And not only of the main character, because sometimes with great acting, you get the interior life of the main character. You can you can get that. But I think it's the secondary characters that you kind of lose uh, some of that because they're whole people, too. And we forget that sometimes. Um, so I get it more from reading. and, and But that could just be me, too. <laughs> so. No, I think there's a lot of value in what you say. And th- then there's also the fact that the medium of a book tends to take up a lot more of our time and energy right. than th- th- that a film by its nature has to be short, that our attention mm-hmm. span can't last that much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I wish it could, because I'm still mad that Tom Bombadil and Gone Burry Gone were not in the Lord of the Rings movies. I'm still upset about this. Two of my favorite well, characters, and they're not in there. But- and that is one of the gifts, I guess. Um, we just got it. You know, we weren't into streaming anything until, well, we just got our first smart TV a couple of years ago. So we're kind of behind the times. But, and then we got, we wouldn't have paid. I don't pay for anything. We still use an antenna. But we got free Netflix with our cell phone service. So uh, so I have watched some things on there. And, and one of the things that I think is good about things like Netflix is, is they turn books into whole series rather than just one movie, one two-hour movie. So they do have the ability to dig deeper into uh, the characters. And we recently read a book. In, I'm in a book club for people who read books for young people. And we only read books for, for middle grade and, and young adult, sometimes even picture books. But we recently read a book that is going to be made into a Netflix series. And I think that's great because it, it would have been too much to put into one movie. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's one good thing about that. But- well, maybe that's one of the reasons why sometimes film goes to tropes of excessive violence or excessive sexuality because they know that in the time period they have, they can't get deep into multiple characters. So they're like, well, we'll just throw this in there and call it good and people will watch it. I I, I do like your, your point that like mini series or things like that can sometimes cover stories really well. And my husband and I, we actually just got our first smart TV two weeks ago. We got it on Father's Day. (laughs) So a little bit of a Luddite and I'm okay with that. But one thing we did watch on Netflix that really had well-developed character and well-developed story and that you had multiple layers in more than just your two protagonists was a Korean drama called Crash Landing on You. Oh, I've never heard of that one. It's Starstruck Lover's of a North Korean army officer and a South Korean woman entrepreneur. But there were so many layers, both to the plot and to the character development. And my husband and I were pretty impressed. And so it made me wonder, we watched a couple other K-dramas, but we didn't like them as well as that one. That was by far our favorite. But so I wondered if, if part of it is medium and if part of it is our current culture of storytelling or our curtain attention spans? They probably all play a role, and they I think they interact with each other in a way, because I think some movie producers assume certain attention spans, and so because of that, that's how they tell their stories. Um, and, and then it gets reinforced, and so people get used to that, and then that's what they expect, and if something is different, then they don't like it, because it's not like all the other. So I'm not a film writer or filmmaker, I don't even watch that many movies, to be honest, but um, but I do find an interest. I guess this is on my mind because I also just read, I saw that being Italian-American, I'm in a lot of groups and uh, on Facebook or whatever related to Italian-American things, and um, somebody posted that they were going to have a Netflix movie called Love and Gelato, and I 
found out it was inspired by a young adult novel. So I wanted to read the novel first and then watch the movie, which I did this week. And it was really interesting to see how much they changed the book for the movie. Now that's pretty common to change the book for the movie. And some of the changes I thought were valid because one of the things I was disappointed in the book, it's about this girl who's lost her mom, but her, like, her mom's basically dying wish was for her to go to Italy because her mom had been to Italy and the girl doesn't really know the story of her father and all this other stuff. And so instead of telling her, which I thought was a kind of weird premise, she sends her to Italy <laughs> to kind of figure out for herself what happened, which was a horrible thing to do um, to a girl who's just lost her mom. But anyway, um, the book focuses on her overcoming her loss and then she gets, she is romantically attracted to two young Italian, well, one's Italian and one's not men, and it's about her deciding which one she's going to, she really likes. And then the movie, one of the things I was disappointed in the book was there's no depth in the characters other than the girl needing to get over the loss of her, not needing to, but coping with the loss of her mother. We don't really know much about her. What does she want in life? We don't know really anything about her. And in the movie, they do give her things she wants, and some of the other characters, they give her things. So that was good. But then they changed so much else. I was like, really? This is the same story? It was, it was, the book is mainly set in Florence with a one-day trip to Rome, and the movie is mainly set in Rome with a couple hours in Florence. So it's just like really quite different. But it was just really interesting to see how different people interpret things. And I guess it kind of goes with what you're saying, too, of like what they think they need to put into a movie to make people like it and mm. some of the things they put in I did not like at all but they don't ask it, our opinion right exactly. <laughs> exactly and then you know especially being Catholic it's hard to find things to watch that you don't find things to object to well it's just as hard in literature well I and how we got on that tangent but <laughs> no it's fine I love tangents I love tangents well and to be honest like we got a smart tv because I wanted us to be able to watch formed together which for those okay. of you who don't know what formed is it's like catholic youtube um stories of saints kids programming cool stuff like that so we could watch formed so we could watch the chosen together and pbs and pbs kids and that's really it <laughs> And I had gotten it because our library has uh, Hoopla and Canva, which are streaming services that for free you can watch. And they have a lot of award-winning movies and programs because we got ours right before Chosen started. And then, and then the pandemic hit and we were able to watch Mass. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh my gosh, we can, we can sit here and participate in Mass in our family room with a large TV. So it was just... It was a blessing. I mean, the time here, because we got it just before the pandemic, um, Christmas right before that. And then we were able to watch mass. I use it for exercise. I do exercise classes with my TV. <laughs> so it's come in handy. But uh, yeah, and we watch PBS on it also. But I don't well, pay any streaming services. Right. And we have Netflix right now, but we haven't used it. And so we're going to probably let that go. Because we, we watched Crash Landing on You, and it's like, I don't know if anything will ever beat it. So yeah. what's the point? <laughs> um, and we don't we don't watch a lot of TV. We just, I don't have time. And so like, we might watch something as a family. Like now that we have the TV, we'll sit down. We home, we're a homeschooling family. And so I'll find an episode of Nova for us to watch or some nature show and um, watch it as a family to kind of work on you know, the family culture of entertainment so that we can learn together and share in that culture. But we read a lot of books too. And I recently read your historical fiction book entitled Playing by Heart. I love historical fiction. And so I just would like you to tell our audience just really briefly about the historical figures that Playing by Heart is based on. I have to tell you, too, that I did not start out intending to write that novel. <laughs> I, st I started out intending to write a nonfiction biography for young people about one of the characters who inspired the novel. So the novel is inspired by two sisters who lived in Milan in the 1700s. One was a mathematician, and she 
wrote, um, she became known for writing a math book that was used by many people. It was the first math book that covered everything from basic math through calculus, because calculus had just recently been put forth by Isaac Newton and I forget the German guy, but it was two people at the same time basically came up with calculus. And she was studying calculus and decided to write a math book. So she wrote this math book and uh, became well known for that. And the Pope, she sent a copy to the Pope who was had studied math in his youth and offered her to be the first female math professor ever in the world at the University of Bologna, but she turned it down. And I should back it up too by saying, so it's her, she's the eldest, and then her younger sister ended up having a gift for music. She was a harpsichordist and later became a composer, and she was one of the first women to ever write a serious opera. And their father was trying to advance himself in social status. They weren't nobility. He was wealthy from his family's silk, silk business, and he wanted to be made a nobleman. And so he, he started having salons in his home where his daughters would speak and perform. So the elder, Maria Gaetana, would give lectures on what she was studying. And she, she learned to speak seven languages by the time she was a teenager. So she could talk in multiple languages. And then her sister would sort of play in the intermissions. She would perform on the harpsichord. And sometimes they would do a duet. The two sisters could perform together. The mathematician Maria Gaetana was able to, uh, she played an instrument similar to a violin, the viola di amore, they call it, because the head where the scroll is looks like a cupid. Maria Gaetana Agnesi was the mathematician. Maria Teresa Agnesi was the composer. So I really wanted to write and publish a math book, uh, not a math book, a biography of the mathematician being my undergraduate degree in math computer science. I was shocked when I came across her name because I had never heard of her. I have a degree in math computer science and I never heard of this woman who I would have looked up to, especially because she was Italian. My parents are Italian immigrants and I had never heard of her. So I wanted people to know who she was. So I had tried to get a book published. Um, I never succeeded and one of the editors I had approached it with said, oh, you should write a novel about the two sisters because of the way the father sort of manipulated them. And so that's how I ended up writing, playing by heart. It wasn't where I started. <laughs> I started writing the biography, but I ended up with a novel, which is a whole different story, <laughs> a whole different beast too. Well, but it's fantastic. And I think that it makes it makes the story accessible. Because like you said, you're getting, you're getting, when you write it as a novel, you're getting the whole person and you're getting the thoughts and things like that, that that's that power of fiction, that narrative teaching. I, I think that that editor, <laughs> they steered you in a great direction. The irony is she didn't want it when I, well, she, she wanted it as a middle grade novel and I, I put a little romance in it and I wanted them to be older because to have the conflict that I felt they would have, I felt they needed to be older. And, and sadly, um, historical fiction is not very popular with teen readers. So um, they didn't want it for teen readers. She turned it down. And I ended up, I actually, it sat in a drawer for a long time because uh, I had sent it around and nobody wanted to publish it. I thought the hook was the selling marketing hook was the fact that it was inspired by two real sisters. And, you know, it, it's still a story with um, complexity, it, it revolves around both sisters trying to find their calling in life, given their father has different goals than they have for themselves, or they, they feel called to do things that are different than their father wants them to do in life. And I tried to make it so that it was relatable to, to today just as well, even though it was said at that time. And I think that's something modern teens struggle with is the fact that, you know, they have this pressure of society or their parents see them in certain roles and but they feel called to do different things and so that conflict and the conflict between the two sisters sibling rivalry was part of the story too and and also then a big component of the story one of my goals was to have people today appreciate how hard it was for women at that time and how extraordinary these two real women were to accomplish what they did in a world that was so stacked against women doing 
anything and having any kind of freedoms. So, um, so that was another component of the story. But I started to say I, I couldn't find a publisher. My first novel uh, is published by uh, Secular Press, but I had a great experience with them because it's it's a story of an, it's based on my own upbringing as an Italian American with immigrant family, and the and the main character suffers a tragedy and struggles with her faith because of this. I hadn't put a lot of religion into it basically or didn't talk a lot about her faith enough so you knew she was struggling but i didn't go a lot into it because i was afraid a secular publisher wouldn't publish it but they not only published it but they encouraged me to add more to show more of how she was struggling and how how what happened to her affected her faith which was wonderful um but when i tried to send this other novel and i did basically the same thing in the in the playing by heart then i show how faith is just part of their lives because it's part of who a person is, whether how you see God, your spirituality is part of who you are. And so you can't portray, in my opinion, you can't portray a character without showing that part of their personality, without showing what their spirituality is like. But I never found a publisher and I put it in the proverbial drawer. And then I attended a Catholic Writers Guild online conference. As an afterthought, I realized, oh, there's going to be there are going to be editors accepting pitches at this conference. And so I remembered that I had this fully written uh, novel in a drawer. So I pulled it out and prepared a pitch and pitched it at the conference. And the editor was interested. And I sent her the, the uh, three chapters. And she asked for the whole thing. And then she ended up publishing it. So that was really God's hand. I mean, the whole time I worked on that novel, so many things happened. Even though I kept, on one hand, kept thinking, you know, nobody wanted to publish it, but on the other times, God kept telling me, no, stick with it and stick with it. <laughs> and it was part of God's plan for it to be published, I guess, the way it was. So, um, so I'm happy about that. And so I hope that readers come to appreciate these two real life characters. I did change their names because given I, like I said earlier, I, I had written for newspapers and magazines and I had done a lot of research, and but there isn't, there wasn't any research I could find where these two characters wrote in their own voices, and was anything other than like Maria Nasi had a textbook, but she didn't have, I didn't have any of her letters, and her sister has her music, but I didn't have any of her letters, so I, I didn't want to put words in the characters' mouths that weren't true to the people, since they were real people. So I changed the characters' names, but I did include real people of that time and what I knew of them. For example, the Archduchess uh, makes an appearance and uh, I did a ton of research for that novel. And when I was researching it, I kept thinking I'd really like to have a scene where my characters meet the Archduchess who later becomes the Empress and is the ruler of Milan uh, because Milan is part of, part of her empire at that time, the Duchy of Milan. So uh, I did have one great source, uh, a music professor, who I found who was knew a great deal about the music of Milan in that time period. And the main character is the composer character, not the mathematician. So I had talked to him about how she learned and a lot of questions. And one of the questions I had for him was, is it plausible that my character would have met the Archduchess on her one and only visit to Milan? Because she was only there once. And he said to me, Oh, not only is it plausible, he says, I think it's probable. So I was like, okay, good. Then I can have a scene where they meet the Archduchess. And I did find a first-person account written in old Italian of, of the Archduchess's visit to Milan. And so I was able to use the information in that document after I painstakingly translated so many words that I don't even exist in Italian anymore. Um, and was able to put those real details from that visit in the story. I can totally see how you would have a connection to Maria Gaetana, the mathematician, because I'm looking at you and you have a gift for math and you have a gift for language. And you even <laughs> made the connection that the computer program was language and that Maria Gaetana, if she lived today, would have probably done precisely what yeah, she... you've done. <laughs> <laughs> She might have. She might have. And the other part that, you know, part of what fascinated me about Maria Gaetana, not only what she did in math and, and how she could have been a math professor if she'd chosen to be, 
was that she didn't want, she was, she was a celebrity of her time, um, but she didn't want the celebrity status. She didn't like the attention and she had wanted to become a nun. She'd asked her father's permission to become a nun because she had a heart for the poor. Um, at the time in Milan, beggars often lined the streets and many of them had physical illnesses or disabilities. And I'm just, I'm guessing, you know, the side of those beggars really broke her heart because she asked her father, well, she, even before she got her father's permission, well, she had his permission to, to help people, to work with people. She actually volunteered in the hospital, which was something women of her class did not do at that time. And not only did she go to the hospital to volunteer, she set up a little dispensary in her home and it had poor women living in her home. Her father let her have a couple of rooms where she personally nursed these people. There's a quote from her younger sister saying she couldn't believe her that Maria Gaetano would actually touch these people herself. Her father refused to give her permission to become a nun because she was still attracting attention to him. He was still hoping to become a nobleman and he didn't want to lose that. But he let her do her volunteer work um, sort of as a compromise. And then he died suddenly of a heart attack when she was in her early 30s. But what's interesting is instead of becoming a nun, what she did is she worked out a deal to use her inheritance to help the poor. And she wanted to start her own hospital for the poor, uh, but she ran out of money. She didn't have enough from her inheritance. And eventually the archbishop uh, was opening a new uh, facility for the poor and homeless, uh, sort of across between a hospital and a shelter, um, and asked her to be the head of the women's section. And so that's what she did. And she spent the rest of her life doing that, and she died in that shelter. She worked there, and she lived there, and she died there. In many ways, I think of her as Mother Teresa of Milan of that mm. time. That's what she makes me think of. So she turned her back on the celebrity. There's a story of how um, there was a sculptor who wanted to sculpt her, but she wouldn't stop for a city. She wouldn't stop to let him take a portrait of her. So he snuck into the shelter where she worked and so basically followed her around and sketched her without her knowing it, created the sculptor, <laughs> sculpture of her. And uh, that sculpture still stands in the Ambrosian Library in Milan. And he sent her a copy of it with a, with a note apologizing for what he called his theft of her image. Um, but I just love that story. You know, it's like she wouldn't stop and take time for that because she was too busy helping people. And she didn't care about the world. She didn't care to be a celebrity. She felt called to, to help the sick and the homeless. What a beautiful story of someone who applied their full gifts, their spiritual gifts, their physical gifts, their intellectual gifts, to making the world a more beautiful and just place. Yeah. Wow. She was kind of independent, though, I think. Well, they say because she never actually became a nun, but the fact that she wasn't a nun allowed her to live the life on her terms and to serve God the way she felt called, whereas if she'd been in community, she wouldn't have had that. So uh, I thought that was really interesting. So some of the some of the historians say she never really wanted to be a nun. She knew that her father wouldn't give her permission and just use that as a bargaining tool. Who knows? But, uh, but she did live a life of service to God. And she's quoted as saying, uh, you know, because she turned her back on math after her father died, she quit the sciences and math. Uh, she said, somebody asked her why, and she said, I basically studied those things because it was my father's wish. I wanted to be an obedient daughter to him, but now I've found better ways and means to serve my other father, my almighty father, and uh, that's where she wanted to focus her energies. Wow. And so here you've written us this book that gives us a little bit of insight into the spiritual life of a young person in history, insight into the historical perspective, insight into gender roles and expectations, but all couched in this beautiful package. It's fabulous. And I always tell people, if they want to listen to classical music or not classical, Baroque, ah. and if they like harpsichord, which I've got my oldest daughter really into harpsichord and there's nowhere to take harpsichord lessons anywhere near us. But um, there's a 
Baroque orchestra called Apollo's Fire. Oh. And they have a woman conductor, and I cannot remember her name, but she's got fiery red hair, fiery red curly hair, and she is a world-class harpsichordist. Wow. And she even conducts from the harpsichord for some pieces. That's unusual. And so as as I was reading your book, I was thinking of her and her Baroque orchestra. And I'm like, oh, it's just happy times. I learned so much about, I didn't know that much about music before I started researching that book too. So I've had a lot of people help me. And again, God just led me to the right people. When after the, um, after the publisher who ended up publishing Playing by Heart said they wanted to publish it, I reread the the whole manuscript. I hadn't read it before I sent it to her. I hadn't read it, you know, long time and i the good news was that i was still happy with it i thought it was pretty good i mean there were some things i wanted to work on but i was happy with it but then the other part was like oh my gosh did i get the music right did i get that part of the story right and um so i had a friend of mine led me to a woman who uh, was a composer and knew a lot about music of that period who agreed to read the manuscript and it turned out that a woman just offhandedly happened to, a woman that I know from church that was in a prayer group I was in happened to mention, oh, her father had passed away and I was giving her my condolences. And she just happened to say that she and her father had bonded over building a harpsichord together, that she was a harpsichordist and they had built a harpsichord together. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so I had never even played a harpsichord. So I, she allowed me to come to her home and just, you know, put the keys a few times on her harpsichord. And then she also read the manuscript. So, you know, as someone who knew harpsichord quite well, so I could get their feedback and their input to help it be uh, as authentic as I could. Make it. So, so God just led me to those kinds of people that I needed to meet to, uh, to make the story what it is. So, and if your daughter likes music, so, Maria Teresa Agnesi's music, they have found some of it. Some of it has been lost. Um, some of it they still have. And I have a blog called mgagnesi.com where I have posts about both sisters. And it links there to places where you can listen to uh, Maria Teresa's music, modern groups um, performing it. Um, not, not, on, not only aren't some people doing it on YouTube, but actually... Uh, there's a group in, I think they're in, I can't remember if they're in the Northeast or they're in Canada, but they, they had a performance dedicated to Agnesi. So that was, that's been fun to, to see people rediscovering her as well. I had never heard of her. I found out about her through her sister. So, so God just took you along this entire path because yes. he wanted this work made. I guess so. I guess so. But the thing is, so I still haven't given up on the biography for young people. <laughs> so uh, about Maria Gaetana. So I've rewritten that, and I'm attending the Catholic Writers Guild Conference this year, this summer, the live conference in a few weeks, where we will get to meet in person. I'll be there, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I hope to pitch it at the conference. Um, we'll see if I can find a publisher for the new version of it. Gotcha. So that's what your, that's your current work in progress. Right. Then. That's my current work in progress. So I've gone back, I've come full circle. Um, I've gone back to poetry. Mm. I'm writing poetry more now. And I have things in a couple of anthologies uh, for young people. And, and one that's going to come out in August, I think. Another anthology is coming out. So it's been fun. It's been fun to get back to poetry. Um, and experiment with forms that I never really had written in before. So yeah, that's uh, that's where I'm now. I had I'd left the end of playing by heart such that I could write. I don't want to call it a sequel, but maybe a companion to it, because we know what happens to the two eldest sisters at the end of the story. But I sort of left open what would happen to the third sister, in the thought that I might write another book that was about her life, but. I haven't felt God calling me to do that. So at this point, I'm not, even though several people, several readers, and it's a, such an honor when someone reads your book and says, are you writing a sequel? Because I want to know what else happens. You know? So, 
Um, so I haven't, uh, haven't gone there, but that's always a possibility if God calls me to that. Oh, how amazing. That's all just, it, it just, it fills my heart with yay to talk about books and story and history. And I just think it's so fantastic for us to have some insight. And when you talk about what the expectations of women were in society and what a woman's outlook would be, and then you look at where we are today, it's it's kind of a wake-up call. <laughs> Yeah. That we are not reliant on dowries, thank God. Right. Right. And that we can make up our own choices. We're not forced into marriage, um, arranged marriage. Or being forced into a religious vocation when you don't have one. Right. 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 Which would be tough because, I mean, religious life is this beautiful gift when you're called to it. You know, that being forced into any vocation... Um, would be pretty crushing to your spirit. Right. Yeah. And I had to, so I had to draw a fine line in my book too, because the conflict for, for my composer character at the beginning is she's afraid that she's going to be forced into vocation as a nun, uh, unless she can prove to her father that she has worth in some other way. And so that's her motivation, part of her motivation to work so hard at her music. She doesn't, she doesn't recognize her own talent because she's had a very critical teacher who in part has been critical because she is female, uh, but he doesn't see her at the beginning of the novel. He hasn't seen her for several years, and he comes back and finally realizes the mistake he's made and that she is incredibly talented, and she does deserve to be uh, taught how to compose as well as play. So, But in the beginning, her, her motivation is that she doesn't want to be a nun because that's not her calling. And right. the fine line is that there's nothing wrong with being a nun. I mean, it's a, no. wonderful, it's a wonderful vocation. I actually, for a while, thought I wanted to be called to be a nun, too. Um, but it wasn't what she was being called. And that's the important thing um, to realize. Um, and another thing that I, I myself have struggled with, and I was trying to portray in the book, too, is how do you figure out what your calling is? How do you discern what God wants you to do with your life? And uh, I think it's something, no matter what era we live in, it's part of, you know, part of our discernment processes to decide that. So um, that's another aspect of the novel. So it's technically, it's a historical fiction that adults will definitely enjoy because many people who've reviewed it have said that, but it's categorized as young adult because the characters, I think she's, 14 or 15 at the beginning of the novel. And it does span a few years, but she's not an adult at the end of the novel. Um, though, at that time, 14 and 15, you were practically an adult. I mean, uh, one of the other characters gets married, who's 16 at the time. So, um, you know, but it's categorized, the novel's categorized as a young adult because the characters are young, but it's definitely a novel for all ages. And the other thing I wanted to say, hearkening back to Pride and Prejudice, was at least one we person in poster review called it an, an Italian version of Pride and Prejudice because part of, and I actually wanted it to be that. I mean, it's again, not really, I wasn't doing a takeoff of Pride and Prejudice, but some of the same themes of misjudging and assuming based on appearances, Maria, the, the, Emilia is the main character who is the composer in the story, misjudges another character, assumes that he's wealthy and is going to inherit his great uncle's fortune, and that turns out not to be the case. So um, that aspect of it has some parallels to Pride and Prejudice. I thought that was really fun to do that. <laughs> well, why would you need to put it into a modern novel? Because haven't we haven't we solved all of the problems of prejudging people <laughs> by now? Right. We're so modern. We've learned our lesson, right? This is why we need literature more than ever. I mean, to me, the times we are living in now where people are so polarized and have such difficulty seeing from someone else's perspective, I think if more people read literature, we'd have less polarization. We'd have more understanding and at least more kindness, I would think, in the world. It saddens me because I think some of the people who most need it don't know they need it and don't make the time for it. So I don't even know if they know it's there for them. I mean, really, yeah. that, that um, no, I, I can't improve on what you've said. So with that in mind, I'm going to switch gears. 
Okay. And we're going to go for the rando round and just throw okay. some things at you. We're going to roll the dice of fate. What do you think? Okay. All right. So our options are pink sparkly dice mm -hmm. or tie-dye. I have to go with pink sparkly because it reminds me of the cover of Playing by Heart. Even though it's not pink, it's more purple. I'm just magical sort of thing. I don't have purple dice yet. I'm waiting till I hit a thousand downloads and then I will get myself one more set of dice, but I have goals, people. So let's see what we end up with. 54. What do you wish you knew when you started writing? Oh, wow. I guess first thing that comes to my mind is that it's normal to think your writing is terrible. <laughs> And if it's the first draft, it probably is terrible. Um, that writing is a process. You can't expect it to come out right the first time. I learned so much from writing my first novel that the, the novel was written in editing and revision. The writing, the first draft is just to get something on the page. Um, it's the editing and revising that makes the story. And I wish I'd realized that. Um, I initially hated editing. I thought it was terrible. And now I see that is the real craft of writing, is the editing. is seeing the, the little moments that can be bigger moments and how the little moments relate to the whole thing and how just a little tweak can make that more apparent. Mm. That's beautiful. That's, you're inspiring me. Don't do that. I have things on my schedule. I don't want to write right now. Well, you can listen to this again when you're ready. Ah, I have to listen to it again when I edit. So, <laughs> and I can actually say that that's true for, for podcasting as well, that you really see like when you edit it and you listen to it again, you're like, wow, that was really good. And you kind of forget you did it. I mean, obviously I have guests and stuff like that, but it's like, wow, that you, you just enjoy it outside of your own ego. Right. And I think there's power in that. Okay. This, this could be revealing. What's your biggest kitchen fail? Oh, <laughs> well, this is a funny one. So I'm actually pretty good in the kitchen. My being Italian, my mother was an excellent cook. My mother didn't use recipes. She just remembered. In fact, may she rest in peace. When she died, we, we found her in a little box of recipes. She liked to collect recipes from newspapers and magazines, but her own things that she made, like her recipe for gnocchi. I don't know if you know gnocchi. They're like potato dumplings. Yep, yep. yep. So many cups of flour, so many potatoes, so much water. That's the whole recipe. <laughs> she doesn't tell you how to do it, what to do, the steps, nothing. Or maybe a pinch of salt might have been in there too. But anyway, my mother, I measure everything. I, I didn't tell you I'm a major in math, computer science, but I have a minor in chemistry. So I measure everything. And uh, anyway, my biggest fail was I was making these almond macaroons that I really like. They use confectioner's sugar. There's confectioner sugar and almond paste and almond flavor, and I forget what else is in there. And I didn't realize that I had pulled out, instead of confectioner's sugar, I have, I have my things all in little Tupperware containers. I don't have them in the original boxes, so they stay sealed so they don't get air in them. And so I had pulled out cornstarch instead of <gasps> confectioner's sugar. So I made them with cornstarch instead of sugar. They were racks. You could, you could, have, you could have done damage if you threw it at someone. That is my biggest kitchen failure. <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. I love it. Well, and see, this is why in the chemistry lab, you need to have everything properly labeled. Yes. <laughs> well, and I probably did have a label, but I just look quickly. They both start with C and mm. I wasn't paying that much attention. They're the same size containers. It wasn't until, I don't know when I realized it, you know, I looked at the actual label. I was like, oh my gosh, this isn't confection of sugar. It's cornstarch. <laughs> oh, that is too awesome. Yeah, I, I actually spent 14 years as a medical laboratory technologist wow. or technician first, then technologist. And so, and, and I'm married to a chemist. So we okay. have a a science heavy household ourselves. Well, I was going to be a chem major. It's kind of a funny story. So 
I didn't know what I was going to major in in college. I wanted something that was practical, that I could earn a living. And I was good in math and science, but it happened that the first, the advisor that consulted me on my very first schedule was a chemistry professor. And he's like, oh, you've done so well in chemistry. You should, you should major in chemistry. And I really did enjoy chemistry, but regular chemistry is a lot like math. You're balancing equations and all that. Then we got to organic chemistry, was it? I don't know. We got to some level of chemistry where it wasn't like math anymore and you just had to memorize. And I wasn't that good in the lab because I wasn't that precise in measuring. And some of my labs flopped and I'm like, you know, I don't think I want to major in chemistry anymore. But I had so many credits at that point. I said, well, I might as well minor in it because I might as well finish that. But I'm going to be a math teacher, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That worked out much better. All right. 83. What's your favorite job you've ever had? Oh, wow. Well, that's funny. I'm trying to think. My very first job, I was a clerk at Sears. I sold draperies at 16. (laughs) That wasn't my favorite. It was all right, but it wasn't my favorite. Well, I like what I'm doing now. (laughs) That should be my favorite job, right, is is writing. Though some days I'm not happy at it, but um, I get the most fulfillment out of writing. I did, I did like being a programmer. I did like writing code, debugging code. I was pretty good at debugging code, but I, I still think my calling was, was to writing and that's what feels the best. That's awesome that you're in your calling. Right. That, that must be an amazing feeling for you. Mm-hmm. Well, I think our time is almost up together. And so I have my last question for all of my guests, which is what gives you hope right now? This is a time when we need hope, too. There's so much going on in the world. I think I find hope being in nature. I love being in nature. And I, it's, it's amazing. One of the blessings of COVID, of the pandemic, has been I've spent more time in nature. Um, my husband and I like to walk in the forest preserves. We live outside Chicago. It's a, it's a suburb, so you know there's lots of homes. Um, but there's a forest preserve a mile from our house. We can walk to it and walk around the preserve and it connects to other preserves. And during the pandemic, we realized, I went online and there's a whole list, there's almost 70 preserves just in our county. So we have been trying to visit new ones and we have visited a number of new preserves. Just a couple of weeks ago, we learned, and this one isn't in our county, but it's the county just south of us, but there is a nature preserve that has a rookery where uh, it's a breeding ground for heron and egrets and cormorants. And it's just amazing. We went there, there were hundreds of birds roosting. And just being out in nature and seeing God's creation and the miracle of life, it just, that uplifts me, that gives me hope. And reminds me that God is there. God is always there. even through all the craziness, God is always there. Thank you so much for that meditation. I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to read your book and then have this conversation with you. It's really been a blessing, Carmela. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.